Welcome to this session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. Uh, it's, uh, it's my great pleasure today to introduce uh, uh, one of the members of the, the board for the center. Professor Hazlett is the H. H. McCauley Endowed Professor of Economics at Clemson University in uh, the, the Johnny Walker uh, Department of Economics. Uh, Professor Hazlett is uh, widely published. Uh, he's, uh, I would say, probably the leading authority on um, the economics of the wireless industry. Uh, he is uh, uh, an extraordinarily accomplished economist. Um, not the least of which is he's probably uh, the funniest economist. So I'm sure you all have actually come today not to hear so much about uh, the economics of network neutrality, uh, but to, uh, to be entertained by uh, Professor Hazlett's uh, words of wisdom. Um, I, I certainly am looking forward to it, uh, but he's also, uh, he's a very dear friend, and so I'm, I'm very pleased and honored to have uh, Professor Tom Hazlett speak here at the Hudson Institute. Please join me. So should I go there or should I do it here? You can do it either way, whatever you want. Oh, wow, they're right there. As if by magic. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Harold, for that very uh, generous uh, introduction. I'll, I'll take it as a compliment that uh, after 30 years of uh, diligent academic work, you're introducing me as a funny economist. So I guess that's after reading some of my academic work, you came to that conclusion. And uh, uh, I do appreciate uh, Harold having me uh, to speak. And um, we talked about doing this last spring, and I said, well, why don't you wait until next fall when I can come back to Washington because I'm moving to South Carolina. So I'm just uh, uh, in the process of uh, transitioning from George Mason University, uh, which you know here in the, in the neighborhood, and moving to a different part of the world. And it is a different part of the world. <laughs> and so uh, we're, we're just getting adjusted. One of the things, however, that's, that's easy about this transition, I actually grew up in Los Angeles and um, I grew up in a UCLA household. Both of my parents were UCLA graduates. So I often tell people, by the way, I hated OJ before he killed anybody. Uh, remembering a bad uh, USC-UCLA football contest. Anyway, when I uh, talked to the folks at Clemson, uh, I, I quickly discovered it was okay. it was okay to go to Clemson University because I could I could still hate USC. So <laughs> Harold gets that. Harold grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, where there's another USC. That's the, the real USC. <laughs> <laughs> so um, apparently about 1998, maybe as late as 2004, there was secret legislation passed in Washington that required any organization or regulatory agency dealing with telecommunications to reserve 50% or more of its capacity for discussion of network neutrality. 
Now, I'm going to get to the bottom of it and see where that actual rule came from, but here we are um, uh, talking about network neutrality. It's been on the agenda for quite some time. In a previous life, it was actually known as open access, and this does date to the late 1990s, a policy that was uh, uh, not enacted and uh, the market was sort of left to run. So I want to start today uh, by going back to some basics and answering a very simple question, what is network neutrality? Do I have that? Which way am I pointing? Right here? This goes forward, I think. I got it. Uh, wireless is amazing, isn't it? So what is network neutrality? I'm going to offer you uh, two, two answers to this question. I'm going to give you the Washington answer, and then I'm going to give you the real-world answer. Okay, so that's the Washington. Uh, that's the Washington answer. And um, we have network neutrality rules that were crafted uh, in late 2010. And these rules were set aside uh, by a court uh, within the last year. Uh, and so we're, we're, again, without network neutrality rules. But from this uh, FCC proceeding, we, we, we have some kind of a very specific idea uh, of what rules would look like under network neutrality. We have the regulatory agency to find that. And there are three basic types of rules. And they all apply to broadband ISPs. What's, what's a broadband ISP? Well, it's sometimes called a last mile internet service provider. So that's the one that connects you or your business uh, to the internet, to all those other networks out there. And you generally pay a subscription fee uh, to that uh, business. And these would be businesses like Comcast or Verizon or AT&T or RCN or even a wireless provider like T-Mobile that now takes you wirelessly uh, to uh, websites around the, around the globe. So uh, the first, uh, there, there are basically three, three rules that came out of that proceeding, and I'm sorry if I'm going slow for those of you who are uh, expert on this uh, topic. But the first was a rule about disclosure that uh, these broadband ISPs that are uh, uh, taking your subscription money uh, have to um, uh, be transparent uh, according to certain rules and, uh, you know, to be worked out over time uh, as these regulatory uh, mandates go. But they have to uh, tell you exactly uh, how your uh, subscription works, how much access, how much bandwidth, uh, and so forth, and, and not do uh, things to you in terms of limiting your, your access uh, that you're not aware of when you subscribe. Now, the disclosure rules, I'll say right off the bat, are the least controversial uh, of anything here. There's certainly regulatory institutions in place uh, through uh, not just the FCC, but particularly the Federal Trade Commission, that uh, commonly police uh, such, um, uh, such um, economic activity and uh, look at disclosure rules. Um, and many people thought, uh, prior to the rules coming out, December uh, 23, 2010, that the FCC would sort of take the easy path, focus on disclosure rules, uh, and then avoid the next two rules that it crafted, but that was, of course, incorrect. And um, the second rule is the non-discrimination rule. Uh, sometimes people call it the bits are bits rule, and that is that, uh, in general, the broadband ISP 
uh, has to treat all the traffic alike. And of course, this is to address this uh, fear, concern, fear, that a broadband ISP will favor certain traffic that it may have a financial interest in and make it easy for its customers to get, uh, say, a movie service that it owns, but make it difficult for the customer to subscribe to an independent service that has not gone through the broadband ISP gateway. Okay, so this is the uh, non-discrimination rule. All the traffic has to be treated basically the same. And then there's a no-blocking no rule so that the ISP cannot limit the sorts of uh, devices you use to access the Internet. And um, the last two rules, that, that, uh, that seems to be what people mean by network neutrality. The, uh, the disclosure rules thrown in and was involved in this uh, proceeding but it really is uh, separate. Uh, it's a disclosure rule. It's a very generic type of regulation. As I say, it generally is not even done by the FCC, but by other agencies. Uh, now, uh, having said that that's what it's like in Washington, here's the real world answer. That's my backyard in South Carolina. <laughs> I put that up there because I think some of my friends in Washington think I was thrown out of the city and I've now been exiled to a part of the world that they are unfamiliar with but slightly fearful of. <laughs> and um, so that, that is, <laughs> uh, anyway, there, there's also, there's a remodel going on. We didn't want to just have the normal amount of chaos with the move. We wanted to remodel immediately after we got there so you can see some two-by-fours sort of slung around the backyard. Anyway, so here's, a, this is what I call the real world now. And the real world answer is we don't know what net, net neutrality is going to be. And that's because no set of rules can get by without allowing reasonable network management. And certainly the FCC rules uh, had that proviso uh, in there. And they also had some differentiation between fixed networks and wireless networks. It's perfectly clear that mobile networks have very significant capacity constraints uh, that in general are tighter than the fixed networks. And so the idea that they might want to manage traffic to make the user experience better is crystal clear. Now, it should be crystal clear for the fixed networks, but it's even more crystal clear, <laughs> better crystal, uh, in, the, in the case of wireless networks. Anyway, all reasonable people and everybody in this debate, including the FCC and the policymakers there, they understand that there has to be reasonable network management. You can't let everything through the network if you're an ISP. And I'll just, in some cases, use examples from, for example, universities. Universities uh, run their local area networks, and the local area networks, of course, pretty big in some cases with uh, many thousands of users. But the IT departments that run those, those networks, they do a lot of traffic management. And in many cases, they bar particular types of uh, uh, uses of the, of, the, of the network altogether. They famously barred Skype or certain uh, movie download services because they swamped the network. And that was destroying, uh, the, dissipating the user experience for uh, others. And so there's, and, and the, the reason that the university uh, IT departments are interesting, you can complain about your IT department, I certainly complain about my IT department, but um, they don't have any economic motive uh, to discriminate against Skype or any other service. They're obviously doing this for a network management purpose. 
And um, over time, a lot of these things get worked out, and, and the networks get more capacious, and network management becomes better so that things don't have to be blocked outright. They can be managed. The traffic flows can be adjusted in a way that actually makes everybody happy. And of course, a lot of engineers will tell you that not all traffic, you know, bits aren't bits. If there is um, some kind of email service that uh, is a few seconds late, it really is not noticeable to the user given the service. If there is a voice over internet application, you know, like Skype, that has a few second lag <laughs> between the, the sending and, and the delivery, that's going to destroy the service. So you want to favor some services over other services. You want to have some network management. This is done ubiquitously. So because you have this very, I'm, gonna, I'm an economist, so I'll call it a pro-efficiency rationale for treating bits differently, for managing different traffic flows, uh, you have a lot of discretion, and you have to have a lot of discretion in the rules. And so that's why I say we really don't know how they would would come out given the fact that this network management uh, function is necessary and being necessary is presumptively legal even if the FCC had not put that language explicitly in those rules in 2010 that uh, reasonable network management was uh, to be allowed. Now here's the underlying fact that the network of networks as uh, we sometimes call the internet is not neutral and it, it has been formed by contracts, contracts between complementary players uh, that do complementary things. And one of the things they do is they pass enormous amounts of digital traffic back and forth. And so if you just look at the, the carriers that form the Internet, uh, particularly the backbone ISPs, you find very large networks that pass traffic amongst other to and from other large networks on a peering arrangement. That means no money changes hands. In some industries, it's called bill and keep. You have your customers, and we have our customers, and we trade, we trade some kind of traffic. Um, we make exchanges, but we don't bill each other for that. Now, in those cases, with these big networks, the back and forth tends to even out. There's sort of a rough justice, and the transaction costs of billing are saved. However, when smaller networks want to interconnect, they pay for transit they pay for transit. This has always been the case. This is not neutral. The smaller networks pay to be part of the internet. Now why is that? Well, they're not contributing as much capacity. It also has a very happy result. There's an incentive to become bigger and to get larger capacity and to do more to deliver bits all around the internet. If you become large enough, you can become a peer and strike peer-to-peer -peer arrangements. If you're smaller, you don't get that. But you can pay on negotiated rates, these are not regulated terms and conditions. There's no interconnection mandate. So that's how the Internet is developed, and that's how it lives and grows today. Now, um, if you read your service agreement with even a small ISP, even when you're going into a, um, you know, a Wi-Fi cafe, you'll find that a lot of stuff is blocked. Okay, and this is particularly true with subscription services where they spe specifically say you can't do certain things with the service. You, can't, you can only uh, perhaps have one connection at your house if you're a residential subscriber. You can't allow bi a business server uh, to come on and start uh, using the wireless connection, if it's a wireless connection. 
uh, with, with a, say, a small ISP. Again, this is not to exploit market power. These small ISPs essentially have no market power. This is to create efficiencies so that the bandwidth can be shared amongst all the cu customers and the user experience uh, does not uh, depreciate below an acceptable level. So a lot of non-neutrality there. So it just turns out that the, the network grows with all kinds of pay-to-play bargains, and I'll mention a, a, few, a few of those. But, you know, the money changing hands and moving around the Internet actually is, is just a wonderful marketplace um, development. I mean, this is, this is the core of this marvelous social institution, creating this enormously productive economic infrastructure, and it's not regulated. And it's not neutral. There are all kinds of deals put together by contract where certain players pay other play players uh, to, pay to play in the system. So these contracts are features, not bugs. They are not inherently suspicious. They are inherently efficient. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean that there can't be some instances of anti-competitive, what we call vertical foreclosure. I'll get to those later. But as a general rule, there shouldn't be a general rule against this kind of socially efficient behavior. But let's talk about a few of these things. Here's a classic example of something that uh, should be outlawed under neutrality rules. The AOL walled garden of the 1990s. And uh, many of you remember this. Uh, in uh, uh, the 1990s, AOL was... Uh, well, the early 90s, they were an up-and-coming ISP in the old dial-up world, and they became a huge, the world's largest ISP, a firm with market power uh, by the year 2000. What happened during the 1990s? Well, AOL developed a walled garden. It gave customers to its service, it paid approximately uh, $20 a month, uh, it, it, it paid, it, it allowed those uh, customers to go to its content providers and to be in the garden, to be a content provider that was in, you had to be approved by AOL and AOL owned a lot of that content. It paid for other parts of the content, but it created a user experience that was interesting. Now, on the other side of that, it gave AOL a, a, a product to sell and enormous incentives for investment in marketing. Who marketed the Internet? Well, in the year uh, 1996, this is from memory from uh, a biography, a nice biography of the, of the company AOL, uh, there were 250 million AOL sign-up disks distributed. <laughs> Essentially, one for every man, woman, and child in the United States. Okay, you couldn't go into a supermarket or a radio. Uh, there used to be record shops, by the way, in the 90s. I don't know if you remember that. And every time you bought a record, they put in an AOL disc, a sign-up disc. Yeah, but in supermarkets, in a lot of places, right, distributed everywhere. Uh, it was called carpet bombing. That was the campaign. The carpet bombing campaign with AOL sign-up discs. <laughs> say, no, I've already signed up. Don't, don't do it. Um, but... Um, the system was easy to use. The sign-up disk was sort of a no-brainer. You didn't have to be a technical expert. People, you know, people make fun of AOL. Um, you know, your grandmother's ISP. Well, 
they had 34 million subscribers uh, by the end of the decade. And when they merged with Time Warner uh, in 2001, they were determined to have market power as an ISP. They were dominant in that field. And they got there through the wall garden. Now, the wall garden didn't last because customers, it turned out, wanted to go outside the walled garden. And there were all kinds of starts and fits and back and forth on this in the 90s that were you know, comical in, in hindsight, but were very big news at the time about how customers could get out of the walled garden and go to the internet and how you know, they'd be metered and the time that they spent out there and so forth and so on. But the fact is that the rest of the content available to customers became so overwhelmingly interesting and alluring that AOL gave up on trying to pull people into its content world. But its content world had its place. And again, it was an unregulated environment where these experiments could be made and then abandoned when they were no longer efficient. So that's a wonderful example of how progress uh, has been made. Uh, not that walled gardens are finished. We'll come back to walled gardens. So iMode and the birth of the wireless web. In 1999, when there was no wireless web, essentially, uh, in Japan, a company called Docomo, the leading wireless uh, carrier, created a service called iMode. Uh, iMode was uh, also a walled garden, but it was stuck on top of the largest wireless carrier in Japan, Docomo. And so what Docomo did uh, uh, is it put an I button on its handsets. And when you press the I button, you got to the preferred content providers. And you could very easily go to their websites. And this was in a slow 2G world. This was not 3G broadband. This was actually pre-broadband. It was a very uh, controlled, managed system where content providers would be selected uh, by the carrier, the ISP, Docomo. And uh, if they complied with certain rules, they couldn't use up a lot of bandwidth. Their prices had to be reasonable for the, the services they were selling to customers because uh, Docomo didn't want cu their customers to get sticker shock. And um, if they played by Docomo's rules, they got into the preferred walled garden, iMode. And the purchases were easy. By the way, all the purchases were done through Docomo. Docomo took 9% off the top. We're, we'll add it to the customer's uh, phone bill and to, to the content providers, the so-called edge innovators, if they didn't like it, they didn't have to be there. They could stay out outside the, the walled garden. In fact, the vendors loved it. The edge providers loved iMode because it was a very easy platform to get into. If they had good content, of course, Docomo wanted to put them in the garden. And Docomo took care of the billing, which was always a problem for some of these smaller providers. And they got a mass audience. And by 2003, I think there were 35 million wireless web subscribers through iMode. The two competing carriers, of course, they had to create their own platforms in response. The wireless web was much bigger than the fixed web in the early 2000s in Japan. That's where the Internet developed. There were almost no Internet subscribers in Japan in 1999 when the wireless web sprang. Okay, this was not neutral. This violates every, <laughs> every net neutrality rule you could imagine, except perhaps for disclosure rules, because the disclosure was good. 
and the customers did flock to it. One of the interesting things is that Google is an example of an upstart provider that could be hurt by ISPs making bad decisions, uh, anti-consumer decisions uh, about which providers they want to they favor. But it turns out that Google was, as an edge provider, faced in an unregulated environment, no net neutrality rules, it was faced with ISPs that could make preferential decisions about what to offer their customers. And if you read uh, more than one of the many biographies, uh, some of them excellent, about the uh, Google, uh, David Weiss's book um, and uh, Ken Aletta's book say essentially the same thing. The most important and riskiest business decision ever taken by Google was 2002, before Google went public, when they didn't have a lot of cash. They made a decision to pay a lot of the cash they had and a percentage of their Google search sales revenue to AOL, the world's leading ISP, for the default search engine position on the AOL startup page. Okay, so that's a dominant ISP favoring content provider that pays. That has to be a textbook violation of net neutrality. Now, I should say that at the time, there was an internal, this is the fascinating part of the story, there was this internal discussion at Google, and um, the two young founders uh, went up against the adult supervision, Eric Schmidt, that came in to be CEO and run a real company. He said, we don't have the money for this. It's too risky. Uh, we can't make this play. Uh, the two young bucks said, thanks, pops. Two to one, we're going to do it. And of course, they were right. The next day, when this went up, they were on 34 million startup pages is the default search engine, and they were off from there. It was a wonderful transaction to bring an edge provider, a startup, without a lot of capital, into prime-time uh, ISP startup page. And that, by all accounts I've read, uh, was a superb deal for, for Google. Now, AOL, I don't know what they're doing these days, but Google... Google did well with it. And um, the ISP having all this market power it's going to use for preferential deals, if you look at actually what happens in these situations, and by the way, uh, it's very routine that search engines or other applications pay to be included on startup pages. And uh, this, is, uh, this is the way a lot of, this, uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, these vendors, these software developers get paid. But when you th see how these deals are actually made and what, what they actually result in, uh, they tend strongly towards efficiency, not towards foreclosure of uh, beneficial products. So another example is, is just this, you know, Harold worked on the Telecommunications Act in 1996, and I haven't even asked him this, but if, if, if I asked what was the number one objective of that act, uh, I would bet... Uh, five dollars that Harold would say to promote head-to-head -head fixed line telephone competition. Do I win my five? Yeah. 
Right. Okay, give me my five. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for a long time, that's what we tried to do. And how did we get there? Well, we're there today. There's over 100 million households that have two lines coming in, and you can subscribe on either one. And uh, many of you have what's called digital phone service from your cable operator. And the way you get digital phone service is the cable operator provides a cable modem service. You know about that, broadband ISP. You know, that's Comcast or Charter or uh, Time Warner Cable. And they also provide a telephone service. And the telephone service uses the digital bandwidth for that cable modem service, only it gets its reserved section. The traffic on the digital phone service for the cable operator competing with the telephone operator means that that service takes priority over, oh, say, a Skype phone call over the same cable modem network. Okay, so these other applications for voice over internet, they don't get access to what the, the cable operator does. Now, this is a great example of non-neutrality, and again, another great example of efficiency. We got competition that way. We knocked down the number one monopoly in the telecommunications sector by having these cable operators use that advantage against the incumbent as the entrant. You want to say that's not efficient? You can make the argument, the argument's being made in the net neutrality debate that that is not efficient. I think it's a very weak argument. I think it's a stellar example of creating competitive outcomes, more competitive than we had before. And for you young people, I'll explain what fixed-line telephony is after this talk. <laughs> now, Apple, we're, we're familiar with Apple. It's a company in uh, Cupertino, California. And um, it, um, it broke into the wireless space in uh, 2007 when uh, Walter Erickson wrote his book about the late Stephen Jobs in 2011. There's an interesting line in the book. It says, Apple had become dominant in wireless. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, in four years. Zero to dominant in four years. Anyway, uh, Apple comes in. How did they become dominant? Well, with iconic innovation, you're familiar with their devices, but you're also familiar with their vertical restrictions. Okay, the iPhone, the iPad, the Apple devices, they tie to the App Store or to iTunes to Apple-owned content platforms. Now, there's a lot of independent content in the Apple Store, but it all goes through the Apple Gatekeeper. And Apple, Apple's got, you know, Apple's a lot like Docomo. They police their garden, and the walled garden is back, and it's wildly successful because it's wildly popular. Now, it's excited a lot of reaction and you're familiar with the Android platform that has come up against Apple and it has different rules and different levels of openness 
So neutrality looks different there. There's still a lot of uh, network platform planning that's provided by Google as the ecosystem master. And Google is very, very helpful in doing that. And it does a lot of things that are more open than Apple. But um, it's not neutral. There's still a lot of control by the, uh, by the ecosystem uh, police, so to speak. And a lot of good comes out of that. By the way, one of the interesting things about the Apple store is that Apple uh, takes 30% of the revenue. They sell. They don't take 9% like Docomo. They take 30% of all the apps. 70% go to the app developers. The same split over in the Google Play platform where people with Android phones download, download uh, and, and pay for the non-free applications. And of that revenue, 70% goes to developers, 30% goes to Google. Google gives their 30% to who? The carrier. Also not neutral. These apps are paying to be on the platform. Because Google wants the, pla the, the carriers to really like the Android platform. And they do. Okay, so they're paid to do it. Um, running through this, uh, content delivery networks, many of you are familiar like Akamai. Yes, there are lots of fast lanes, and they're created, and they're beneficial, and they help traffic get to where it's going without so much congestion. So uh, companies like Akamai, uh, for a fee, will take um, a vendor's uh, content and move it around to avoid traffic jams on the Internet so that there are fast lanes, and they cost money. And that's the way we get growth of the Internet, increasing quality of the Internet. And, of course, there's a lot of competition to create these fast lanes. And so that works pretty well. Non-neutral. So what's the political equilibrium? Well, I think in general the political equilibrium is this, that there's going to be a regulatory agency passing laws. And then there's going to be a court somewhere to overturn them, usually the D.C. Circuit. And uh, that's going to be where we are. We're there now. It's a good equilibrium. You live in Washington. I've got to talk this up. I have a house for sale in Montgomery County. There's a lot of wealth in this neighborhood, okay? And it's, it's good. It's good for the economy. So, yes, the Comcast decision, which was a net neutrality um, rule involving a Comcast um, uh, practice uh, on its uh, cable modem network, now, that was... Um, 2007, the rule came down, and then it was overturned a couple of years later. Um, then in uh, 2010, uh, the open Internet uh, uh, ruling from the FCC, I've been citing from it, and then that's been overturned in the last year. And, of course, there's now pressure right now for a bold move on behalf of the, uh, the Federal Communications Commission. Some people are even talking about Title II, Title II, which is public utility regulation, the old rate of return system for telecommunications. Okay, so that's rather remarkable, <laughs> uh, and there are many, many sources on this, but I particularly like a paper written by the FCC uh, uh, staff member, uh, Jason Oxman, very nice paper, 1999, called The FCC and the Unregulation of the Internet, okay? And I've assigned this paper to students. It's, it's, there's a lot in it, and... Um, uh, on some of my dyspeptic days, I've been, um, I've, I've uh, 
I, I couldn't help myself from noting the irony of a regulatory agency producing a paper that says the following. This great new social innovation, the Internet, was only possible because we didn't destroy it. And taking credit for all the things they didn't do that would have been wrong. I have, I have noted that. Now, the fact is, at least in, in Washington, okay, there are these margins. And, and one FCC is not equivalent to the next FCC. And yes, there, there actually is a story here, going back to the 1960s, where FCCs got better. And through the computer rulings and some of the other things that they've done, uh, the 96 Telecommunications Act, um, you know, obviously Congress stepping in, but, you know, in fits and starts, you know, it's not, you know, it's uh, the dialectic, you know, two steps forward, one step back. But there has been this, this general understanding that enhanced services have to be deregulated. Basic services, you can regulate those and you won't hurt too much because we know what those are and they don't move much. And um, they're just fine sitting there the way they are. But the dynamic part of the telecommunications world, we can't put our old rules on that. The legacy regulatory environment will kill that stuff off. And there are many proceedings that go through this. And this paper, uh, the Oxman paper, really goes through it in nice, you know, fairly, fairly good detail. So I highly recommend it. But here's the commission. And they say flat out, look, we wouldn't have had an internet. I mean, how did we get dial-up? How do we get dial-up? Well, dial-up was a service where uh, companies came in uh, and rented business lines and had those business lines connect to modems in the ISP's office. And if they put that traffic back into the phone system after it was scrambled up and made into an IP signal, rather than a, a telephone uh, communications, under the old rules, the Title II rules, they would have had to pay per-minute charges, access fees, to get back in the network. So the FCC, starting in the 80s on this, the early 80s, in fact, uh, declared that enhanced service providers would not have to pay those charges. They'd be deregulated. And from that and supporting moves, and then resulting uh, marketplace activity, you get the development of what's called the commercial internet. And this paper outlines very nicely uh, a number of pressure points which, uh, at which regulations had to be stripped back for what became known as information services, not telecommunication services. Enhanced basic, um, information Telecommunications, the same split. Now, voice over Internet, which is a very important application today, and we all use services that have voice over Internet, whether it be Skype or FaceTime. Um, the states wanted to come in and regulate like a public utility, and there were battles 10 years ago on that. California, Minnesota jumped in and did license or attempt to license voice over Internet providers. And the Federal Communications Commission also, uh, there was pressure to, uh, to, to regulate and, and have all kinds of uh, access rules and tariffing uh, and charges levied on voice over Internet. And the founder of uh, 
you know, the pioneer who did this, Jeff Pulver, is out now very nicely and articulately and knowledgeably articulating the case uh, for his battles, his historic battles, fighting Title II regulation to put new services on the Internet and, um, and opposing net neutrality rules that would endanger that sort of deregulation. And it, it's interesting, of course, the cable broadband uh, was never regulated, and it jumped out early. Why do you think we had so much more cable modem service in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, than DSL? We had an unregulated service and a regulated service, and it was the unregulated service that jumped out. I have a little bit on that, but I think we're going to run out of time for that. But um, um, So I just want to say we still have Title II regulation. A lot of the world is regulated on the old Title II rules, and there's tariffs for telecommunication services, and people can, you know, lease lines and do all kinds of stuff like they used to do on Title II. Well, what's happening there? Nothing. <laughs> it's all happening in the unregulated information services sector. And now, of course, people say, well, that's where it's happening, so that's where we need the rules now. Okay, so they want to chase the market with the old rules that were stripped away to allow that market to develop. Okay, so that's just that dynamic. So we still have a little bit of that. Not much is happening. Now, there's some empirical evidence. I don't want to go through this because I'm taking too much time. But I will recommend a 2008 paper. I'll summarize it very quickly uh, by my, myself and Anil Kaliskan, who's a, she's a great economist. She's now at the World Bank. And um, uh, we, we just took a look at the differences in uh, subscribership between cable modems and uh, uh, digital subscriber lines uh, provided by uh, local telecommunications providers, uh, phone companies, uh, and regulated up until early 2003, then substantially deregulated in early 2003 when a uh, regulation called line sharing was eliminated, and then further deregulated in August of 2005 uh, when these... Uh, the Title II regulations were taken away from the broadband development. And what happens, and I'll, I, actually I'll just, this is a 2008 paper, Hazlett Kaliskan, you can send me a note, I'll send it to you, it's in the uh, Review of Network Economics. Um, what happens is this, this is the, oh, here, here it is. So this is really the payoff chart. The big deregulation happens in early 2003. These are quarterly data. The black are U.S. cable modem subscribers. Um, uh, the, the vertical line is where this deregulation takes place, early 2003. The data are quarterly. You can see that going up, to press the wrong button here. Anyway, you do that? There it is, right here. Okay. So here, here you have the black. This is the um, cable modems. They're, they get out to a big lead in an unregulated environment over DSL. This is zero, so there's almost a two-to-one lead here. Then this line-sharing regulation is eliminated, and it wipes out the... Um, uh, so-called uh, competitive uh, local exchange carriers that were using the phone company lines. And, and the phone companies themselves have stronger incentives, apparently, to build out DSL. And what happens is 
They do. They have much stronger incentives. If you just extrapolate this trend for DSL subscribership, you would come to about 15 million households served by the end of 2006. Okay? What happens is there's a very large kick up in trend. We end up at about 25 million. Okay? Now, there may be other things happening in the market. We actually ran uh, regressions where we actually adjusted, we controlled for what was happening in the Canadian market. Canadian market very similar to the U.S. If there are technology trends that are really favoring DSL, cost factors working in the favor of DSL, international um, equipment market and so forth, uh, the Canadian market's going to have a big kick up in DSL too. That didn't happen. Okay, so adjusting for what we think is a, a good control sample, uh, we still see very responsive outcomes here. Now, this is strong evidence. Now, there may be other evidence out there, but I will say that to get any fiber to the home in this country, to get any fiber to the home, it's fairly well understood, and it's certainly understood by Corning and by Gartner Group that makes these estimates uh, that has come out and explicitly said this, we weren't going to get any fiber to the home until we had rules in 2003 and 2004 that came in that said there would be no open access, no neutrality, no sharing of those lines. So it turns out that when we get um, rules that don't regulate, we're getting a lot more. So, okay. So uh, what else do we want to say here? What else do we have time for? I should be wrapping up. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll just do this. It'll just take a couple of minutes. Now, I said before, we don't know how net neutrality rules would work. We really don't. I don't know what's coming from the FCC, uh, if anything. And there are people in this room uh, who I'm sure could inform me and give me some good projections. But we know how it did work. We have a little bit of an idea in the window in which those 2010 rules were out there, there were complaints filed. And the first complaint is very illustrative, I believe, of how rules might work and the problems the regulator, any regulator will have in, in pursuing them. Okay. The first complaint filed was not against Verizon, not against Comcast. It was against Metro PCS. Okay, the fifth largest U.S. mobile provider, 8 million subscribers, less than 10% the size of Verizon. And what did Metro PCS do? Oh, by the way, this was not a random complaint. There's actually language in the order that points out uh, sites specifically to Metro PCS's pricing practices as an example of non-neutral behavior that's suspicious and potentially anti-competitive. So this complaint was, in essence, invited by the regulator. That's why it was first, I suppose. So here's the violation. Here's the asserted violation of neutrality. Metro PCS uh, charges less than a lot of companies for wireless service. And this is an ad from um, late 2010, early 2011. And... Um, at the time of the complaint. And so what they did is they had uh, a couple of different offerings. 
Uh, what is this uh, 60 bucks a month, all you can eat, everything on a 4G system? Okay? Now, over here are some smaller uh, prices. And look at this one, $40 a month per month. I don't know if you can read this little fuzzy. Web access at 4G speeds and unlim unlimited YouTube. Not unlimited web access. And in fact, the $40 offer was on a 2G network. Okay? You got some access to 4G, or they call 4G speeds, but this was delivered on a 2G network, 2.5G network, they might call it. On that network, there could not be video streaming. It would just clog uh, the system. So you couldn't use it for a lot of things. You, and you couldn't use it, by the way, for peer-to-peer -peer applications like Skype. So some things were blocked. But what happened was YouTube is popular. YouTube is popular with people who want to spend $40 a month for voice, text, and data. They're called young people. Okay. You've seen them. I have I have daughters 14 and 16 so I I know the enemy okay Oops So so here we are These customers like YouTube so what Metro PCS does it goes to Google the owner of YouTube and says look we'd like to give access to YouTube to our customers but on this 2G network it just does not work By the way the $60 a month customers they can get YouTube all they want they don't need any special favors. They can get anything else they want. They can go to Hulu. Um, uh, they can go to Netflix. Now, these guys, at 40 bucks a month, um, they're limited in bandwidth. And so the deal is that Metro PCS says to Google, we want to we figure out something here, a compression technique or some trick, some caching, you know, whatever you got for us. So, you know, the Google... People take this as a challenge. They go on, you know, 15 minutes later, they're back with, <laughs> we redesigned your network through software, whatever it was. Yeah, we've got something. Here, do this. They wanted, of course, these customers to get to YouTube. That's their uh, property. And, of course, Metro PCS wanted their customers to be able to get to YouTube because they wanted to sell more subscriptions. Metro PCS has no interest in Google that I know of. Uh, and they've, they've, they've publicly claimed they have none. And they're not, uh, they're not under contract. Uh, they're not being paid by Google for this. Now, that's the violation. It's YouTube and not Hulu or Netflix or other video sites. You can't stream the other stuff. So the extra stuff that was added, that's not neutral. That's what the FCC suggested. That's what this complaint by consumer groups alleged. Of course, it was never adjudicated. The rules were vacated by the court. But that's where the FCC will look for neutrality violations. Okay? Um, they look to attack efficiency. I mean, that, that, that's alarming. That's alarming. Okay? And, in fact, this is even the article in Endogadget about this. And, and even the tech press, you know, you think they might be nice. They say it's a pretty fantastic deal. This is a comment January 3, 2011 on the, on the low prices at Metro PCS. But they say, well, you know, 
when you figure it out, you know, in this YouTube deal, it says uh, they like the price. It's a step in the right direction. But pro-net neutrality? Yeah, not so much. Yeah, not so much. Okay, let's get rid of YouTube. Now we're neutral. Okay, nobody gets to stream. So that's the way these rules can go. And even the folks with a keen eye at Endogadget, and of course, you know, many of us read their stuff. Good reporting. But um, that's where these rules go. Very difficult to assess and to split off from um, efficiency. So uh, in closing, I'll just say that we, um, we do have an alternative path. Yes, I actually have that slide. Okay. Vertical foreclosure. If a firm with market power uses that power to subvert competition, either in its market or an ancillary market, It can be accused and, in fact, convicted of violating the antitrust statutes. And we have uh, federal agencies ready to investigate and prosecute such cases. Okay, Vertical foreclosure. Uh, there was a Microsoft case about this. I don't know if you remember that. This is an existing policy. It goes case by case. It does not assume that vertical integration or cooperation between complementary producers is inherently suspicious. It assumes the reverse, that it's, it's ubiquitous and generally efficient. And that is the factual case. Now, can there be antitrust violations, anti-competitive situations? According to the law, there can. And the law is uh, developed around the idea that if there is a restriction of output that's developed through some of these vertical activities, it's called vertical foreclosure. Okay, and it can be prosecuted. Net neutrality takes the opposite view. It assumes that any kind of cooperation between a broadband provider uh, and a service that rides on that broadband system is suspicious and should be illegal except for exceptions made for reasonable network management. So the law comes from a different uh, point, and if you're an attorney, you'll say, well, that's, that's the difference between a rule of reason, which is the antitrust rule, and the per se rule, which is the net neutrality rule. But these kinds of uh, discriminations, as the law under the FCC calls it, are per se illegal. Okay. Now, of course, there has to be a carve-out for reasonable network management. I say that that's going to have to be a pretty big carve-out. Okay, so I believe it's folly to, to, to take this reverse position from the antitrust law and to assume that these vertical cooperation uh, instances are endemic and anti-competitive. Okay, and I believe it's destructive of the Internet. So that's it. Thank you, and I appreciate your being so patient. figure out this technology one of these years now. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to ask the first question or two and then turn it over to the audience. Um, I've, I've always been struck by the, the lack of an avalanche of complaints during the period of time when uh, the network neutrality rules were in place. 
Um, and in all of the, <clears throat> it's also interesting that the advocacy on network neutrality is always forward-looking and hypothetical. It's never retrospective and sort of saying, we need network neutrality rules to stop the metro PCSs of the world uh, or the AOL Walt Gardens or the like. Uh, in, in fact, are you familiar with uh, a wide range of existing business arrangements that draw the ire of um, uh, the network neutrality advocates? Well, uh, you know, no. As as you know, as you as you pose it as a net neutrality violation, there is a lot of controversy, of course, just about traffic flows, and there is a changing. I mean, one of the great things about the structure of this marketplace is that it evolves and new uh, rules come in, new business deals come in, the content delivery networks have come in to sort of reshape how uh, vendors of content can can get fast delivery to customers and you know as I say that's paying for fast lanes but the fast lanes get built. Um, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of change going on now it has been going on for some year and David Clark uh, sometimes called uh, one of the fathers of the Internet, up at MIT, has been writing papers on this for a long time. Uh, the large eyeball networks, uh, he calls them large eyeball networks, are the broadband, the residential broadband systems. And they're pretty expensive to run those lines from house to house. You know, I don't know how Fios does it. I don't know how Fios got to our house in Montgomery County. But it's very, I, I do know how, they threw a lot of shareholder money at it. That's how they did it. Um, uh, and, and, and running those very high capacity lines to the customer turns out to be pretty, uh, a pretty costly thing. The content distributors, they, you know, they, the, they, they build themselves around uh, you know, internet nodes and they don't, you know, they can dump, they, they always get these high speed connections that are pretty, pretty reasonable anyway. Those are called the, uh, con the um, um, uh, well, the content networks. They want to get their content to the eyeball networks. And Clark has been documenting for some time that the, the flow of funds will logically shift towards those large eyeball networks. Yes, subscribers do pay. The eyeball subscribers do pay to get access. And some people say, well, I, you know, as long as you pay, you should get everything. Well, that... There's no economic logic to that. There's also a big benefit in those networks being expanded, capacities being increased, and so the content networks are paying for that. But they've been paying for a long time. They pay through the content delivery networks. They pay directly through these, you know, transit agreements. There's been this highly publicized deal between um, Netflix and Comcast, and uh, so Netflix pays to get better access and faster delivery of its content. Well, its content is pretty voluminous, and um, you know, these video is, um, um, you know, just when we thought television was dead, um, you know, it comes to us just through through a new form, and 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 uh, these customers, you people, are downloading a lot of content in the form of video, and that's clogging networks, and uh, networks are being built uh, bigger and 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 larger to, to do it, but. The, the conflict now is over these, these fees and the changing nature of the fees 
within the internet structure. So certainly there's a lot of complaint about the fact that, you know, the content networks are paying the eyeball networks. And apparently that's thought to be non-neutral um, and a potential violation. I think that that's the argument. Of course, if the, the commission or any regulator stepped in to try to stop it, that would stop the investment in the eyeball networks that the content networks want and even want to pay for if push comes to shove. Okay, so uh, I don't know what can be done about it in terms of an actual regulatory policy and outcome. That's why I say in the real world we don't know what these rules are, gonna, are going to do. But I think there is skirmishing and controversy about those payments that are being made from the content networks to the eyeball networks. Okay, let's let's turn it over to uh, the audience. Uh, please identify yourself uh, before you ask your question. Hi, my name is Chuck Manto. Um, for background of a small telecom consulting business, and I used to run a CLEC operation uh, back around 2000 and I have four issued patents on a market-based approach to universal service. Mm. Um, so I have an interest, uh, a question of interest to myself is uh, the universal service piece of a non-regulated market, um, if it's determined that the basic service that people need more than they ever even needed, telephone service, might be um, a meaningful amount of broadband, um, do you foresee um, uh, since that uh, the cost of broadband itself is sort of becoming close to zero compared to content and everything else. Do you see that there's room or likelihood for some kind of establishment of a minimal amount of broadband access that is almost by policy given everyone for free or something close to free so that everybody participates in the broadband that they need to maintain their viability so that, you know, Whatever that amount is, I would have no idea, but every household could have access to that. And is that something that's sustainable and supported by a market as well as the regulatory framework in which you are discussing today? <laughs> a universal service for broadband. Well, that's our policy. The U.S. changed policies on that. Um, we spent about $9 billion a year on the universal service fund and a little over $2 billion goes to the E-rate program for schools and libraries. And um, uh, I have written a couple of papers on this that I'll be happy to send to you. Um, I'm, trying, I'm searching for something good to say about the Universal Service Program, and I'm just falling short. Um, you know, I get a lot of things in my inbox, and I get a lot of stuff about, you know, universal service is good. We need more of it. We need to extend it. We need more technology in the classroom for kids to learn better. And then the other stuff I get is um, LA City Schools uh, embarrassed by $1 billion Apple failure when they tried to give out iPads to all the students. Uh, turned out to be a debacle, did not help learning, did not, you know, squandered a billion dollars apparently. Um, and professors, professors telling students they can't use their notebooks in the classroom anymore. Okay. No, not just turn off Wi-Fi. Just get <laughs> don't, don't use your notebooks. And studies coming in now saying that the computer's not a good way to take notes. 
So when you talk about this being a facility, certainly access to broadband is important. It's great infrastructure for an advanced economy and for a developing economy. Um, and we've, we've done a lot to get there. In 2011, the FCC took that $9 billion fund, basically, and said we want to redirect this now towards broadband. And, um, but they're, you know, they're just wasting enormous amounts of money. They're taxing, essentially, the, the taxes are in large measure paid by low-income consumers, and I won't go into the reasons why, but they're the ones that purchase long-distance services. Again, you young people, I'll explain what long-distance is after the session. But there's some things that are still defined as long-distance, and they t those taxes tend to fall heavily on uh, urban poor. And um, the subsidies are paid uh, predominantly to... Um, vendors on the on the e-rate side vendors to deliver services that have no impact on educational outcomes uh, that we can discern and to owners of rural telephone companies and you know I like to ask people how many telephone companies do we have in America and uh, well over a thousand <laughs> uh, people can only name two uh, four if you go wireless but uh, we, we've created a whole, I, I won't call it a cottage industry, it's a real industry uh, that, that exists with government subsidy, and they're now delivering broadband, but I don't think they're delivering new broadband to very many places. That's been studied. And so it's very hard to do those programs, and if you've got patents to make it work for universal service, um, maybe those are valuable. So I wish you well on that. Uh, next question, gentlemen up here in front. Hi, uh, my name is Raj, uh, just a DC resident. Uh, two questions. Uh, how is this issue addressed in other economies, let's say South Korea, Japan? Uh, my second question is, um, given how many businesses and uh, people depend on this uh, critical infrastructure, broadband access, uh, do you think down the line there can be this public-private partnership between uh, companies, uh, state governments, and the federal government chipping in to build uh, better and faster networks throughout the country? And, and, and my other question is, is there any city or state let's in this let's, country? Let's okay. get the two. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I mean, the Internet... There are obviously a lot of, uh, I mean, there are differences between countries, but the basic structure is, is fairly common. Um, when I say that, you immediately say, well, what about Saudi Arabia or, you know, China? You certainly get a lot of compromises on the structure of the Internet, so to speak. Um, but, you know, net neutrality rules are being applied in some places. Chile has put on some rules. I haven't seen any studies. If you have, if you have work on that, please send it to me. That would be interesting. Um, the open access rules, which uh, Anil um, Kaliskan and I did a study of, they're similar to network neutrality rules. We applied them here. We get some empirical results on that, and they're not positive for the regulations. Um, so I, I don't know uh, what's coming out of the rules that have been applied. So I can't, I can't give you much on that, and I apologize for that. Public-private partnerships to build out better, faster broadband? Surely you jest. Okay, now there, is, there, there has been talk about how, how slow the U.S. is. 
Really? I mean, really? In Montgomery County, I said I was startled that I got Fios. In our subdivision, everybody has at least three acres. Okay, now, yes, Verizon learned its lesson on that. And they stopped at 18 million households. But uh, that's 18 million households that have access to a lot of bandwidth. Okay. Um, certainly the cable operators have a lot of bandwidth everywhere. And that's, you know, that's pretty close to 100% of U.S. households have access to very high speed. I just moved to Salem, South Carolina, and the cable operator, um, I won't mention any names, but the cable operator charter, when it works, and I do say this because I got three cell phone calls this morning from charter talking about the interruption. I haven't even talked to my wife, but apparently she's reported an interruption of service. But uh, when it works, it's 60 megabits. And it's a very nice, very nice service. And, but that's not unusual. That's, that's just cable speeds, cable modem speeds. Yes, AT&T is, is uh, with, with DSL in our neighborhood is slow. Um, but, uh, and, and people talk about the competitive problem there. And cable since 2006, actually, you know, the study and the numbers I put up, DSL was catching up. Well, it's not catching up anymore because of the very high speeds that cable offers. And um, so we have, you know, I mean, through DOCSIS 3, uh, the uh, latest and greatest uh, cable modem service, you know, we, we really have the country covered with 100 megabits a second, you know, or we're close. And, uh, you know, there are other certain, you know, fiber to the home services that are out there. But there aren't many countries with have, you know, that have a better experience with high-speed broadband. I mean, you get a lot of talk about Japan uh, and Korea. Korea's done very well, no question. And they've had a very competitive system as well. People talk about subsidies. I think it's the competition between the carriers. And they have had competition from day one. And they have a lot of density, which helps them as well. Um, Japan has put maybe some public subsidies in through NTT. Uh, but there, you know, are great applications, and is there a revolution coming out of the Japanese experience? You know, a lot of Japanese subscribers are not taking the highest level of the fastest service there. They're dropping down because you just really don't need more than, you know, 20 or 30 megabits to, to get your video high definition streamed to you. So I don't know what the social purpose of subsidies would be in public-private partnerships to go, to go more. I think we have time for one more question, and who has the microphone? Uh, the gentleman over here in front. Hi, I'm, I'm Robert Mariani. Uh, I'm from FreedomWorks, and I'm curious about um, because you mentioned the specific, uh, you know, as it is implemented regulation, how that sort of just cuts off investment. It just simply stops. Um, I'm wondering, because I remember a quote from the founder of Vonage, who now functions as a venture capitalist. Um, I'm wondering about the regulatory uncertainty and if there's been any studies or maybe even um, perhaps like thought experiments or anything of that nature on how how just the 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 discretionary powers of regulatory agencies will get in the way um and also the 
the difference between um, net neutrality in general and the specific implementation um, in the form of Title II, like if that's much worse? Well, on investment incentives, um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we had some of that showing up just by looking at the outcomes, the subscribership outcomes for DSL versus cable modem service. And um, you also see things like the uh, 2008 uh, 700 megahertz auction at the FCC, one of the licenses, which was a very nice license, uh, allocated 22 megahertz of prime television uh, band uh, radio spectrum. Uh, that had special obligations, which are tantamount to net neutrality uh, rules or open access rules, and that was the C block. And uh, Verizon, uh, famously within uh, those circles, uh, got a very low price relative to what the other licenses were selling for in that auction. They paid about four and a half billion for that license. And if prices paid elsewhere, they would have paid somewhere around twice that much. Um, so there was a significant discount. It may not have been the entire. Uh, there are other things happening in the auction, and, and some people argue it's not the entire 50% uh, discount or whatnot. But uh, there, there was a significant discount. That's, that's visible evidence that companies don't want the regulatory overhead of having to deal with these restrictions. And, um, you know, I sort of laughed when I, when, I, when you know, the, you saw the outcome of the, the auction and, and Verizon took on these obligations. And I thought, well, you know, they only paid four and a half billion. The, you know, the shadow price was nine billion. So they got, you know, they, go, they got a going out of business sale price and they got four and a half billion they could put in their legal fund right off the bat to, you know, to work with regulators on how those rules were going to be applied. And so, you know, that's, that's the way the certainly business investment function works, that you will look at the cost, the expected anticipated cost against the anticipated uh, revenues and profits that are flowing from the investment, from whatever you're, you're undertaking. Spectrum, when you're buying licenses from the FCC, that's a, a very open purchase uh, with an investment function. And so you can see it in, in that kind of situation. But when you're talking about the current rules we have, yeah, it, it is, it, it, there is some trepidation, but I think the unrealistic nature of the rules, you know, has, has its own, you know, that has a mitigating effect as well that I think a lot of investors sort of, you know, whatever the FCC does, it's going to be tied up for years in the courts. And when they really get around to doing something, we're going to have reasonable network management that has to be allowed. And we have good lawyers to show the agency that that's all we're doing. So you got to be careful. It's not that investment absolutely stops. It's not going to stop uh, because people, you know, I mean, the investors, the, you know, there is demand for these services and the, the regulations aren't going to eliminate all profit opportunities. So it's not going to be black or white. In many, you know, in some sense that, you know, that makes it harder to, to really figure out what's happening. And that's just the world we live in. And that's why, you know, that's why we, you know, that's why God made economists, you know, so we, yeah, <laughs> you're shaking your head. <laughs> I'm sorry, God did it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's 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 how Harold and I got here. Okay. <laughs> and with that, let's uh let's thank our great economist for the time.